Hello, and thank you for downloading this episode of the Malted Muse podcast. Some time ago, there was a distillery that produced a, uh, a whiskey that Jim McEwen rated 100 points out of 100. He gave it top marks. This same distillery produced a new make spirit, which I tasted last year and thought it was fantastic. This is a distillery that closed and then reopened again. It's a distillery called Glenglazo Distillery. It's at Port Soy. And they've released a news release about another whiskey that they're bringing out on the market. And it sounds really great. Let me read you the media information that's been sent to me. And that came on the 25th of August 2011. And I was so tempted to phone up Ronnie Rutledge from Glenglazit to talk about this. But I had suitcases to pack ready to go flying off on my well-deserved holiday. Glenglazic Distillery at Port Soy on the picturesque Moray Firth coast proudly announced the release of the first bottling from their Chosen Few series of single cask expressions. The Chosen Few series, explains Ronnie Rutledge, customer account manager for Glenglazic, allowed our team, based here at the distillery, the opportunity to sample various casks from our small portfolio to discover his or her favourite cask of Glenglazic Highland Single Mort Scotch Whiskey and get the once-in-a-lifetime experience of having it bottled with their own name on the label. The team of ten have each given an indication of which whiskey they would like to bottle and we will release these over the next two to three years. Some of them are carefully watching casks of spirit which we distilled and laid down after reopening the distillery in November 2008 and actually anxiously wait for them to mature into whiskey, while others prefer the greatly aged Glenglazic whiskies. I was very privileged to be asked to choose the first release, which is one of the finest single malts I have ever tasted, and I have tried an awful lot, says Ronnie Rutledge, who is well known in the whisky industry, is a keeper of the quake and an ex-whisky judge. This particular expression delivers everything I look for in well-balanced single malts, complexity, depth, tropical fruit in abundance, chocolate and a good sherry character, balanced perfectly with oak spice. This very limited expression of only 654 bottles is from a 1976 vintage sherry butt, bottled at 35 years old at a natural strength of 49.6 ABV and is available through all good whisky stockists with a recommended retail price of £299.99p. It was quite an honour and privilege to be presented with bottle number two from the release. It almost felt like a lifetime achievement award, said Ronnie Rutledge. The team at Glenglazic are also busy renovating their new dedicated visitor centre, which they are determined to open before the end of 2011 to coincide with the release of their very first single malt, distilled since the new owners took over in 2008. 
after a close spell of 22 years. Distillery tours at the moment are by appointment only, so it would be great to have proper facilities in place for the many visitors who make a pilgrimage to Glenglazoc and expand on what we are currently offering, explains Stuart Nickerson, Managing Director for Glenglazoc Distillery. The Banffshire region as a whole will benefit from Glenglazoc's visitor centre and attract thousands of tourists into the area each year. Glenglazoc has a range of whisky available from 26 years of age to a 45 year old and more information on these and how to purchase them as well as your very own 50 litre octave cask can be found on the distillery website www.glenglazoc.com Well that's exciting and brilliant news, really looking forward to that and also possibly going up at some point and have a look around that visitor centre. One of the great things that I really enjoy about hosting an independent podcast is the freedom to set my own agenda. If I want to explore an issue, I can do it without having to seek corporate agreement. This in turn means that my own education and development is improved and it's done so in a self-governed way. You see, if there's an issue I feel weak on or I feel that I need to look at, then I can do that. And the podcast actually helps me to focus on it. Now, I am aware that this is a bit self-indulgent, but I don't really have much of a problem with that. Because I feel that old saying comes into play, what is most personal is most universal. If I need to explore something, then the chances are, so will someone else, even if they don't truly acknowledge it. Now recently, I've been struggling with something. And the thing I've been struggling with is the concept of what actually is whiskey. It's a simple question with a straightforward answer. There are different types of whisky and there are sets of definitions and legislation that defines them. These may not always agree on an international level. As I expressed in my rant a few episodes ago about America and English whisky, a rant that is still available to be read on my website. Now these definitions are but a basic form of definition. They address only one aspect of definition. They look at the physical components and methods of production and maturation. Just as one would define a cube or music. Such definitions are but a starting point. A cube can be defined by its shape six sides, all of which are equal squares. But that definition tells us nothing else. It misses out aspects of function or emotions. It has no relativity or association. It fails to say that it can be sat on or sheltered in, or that it is a support or its suggestion of of whatever. A definition of music is more so. A factual definition t- 
tells us what defines music, but not what music defines. It expands, it explores, and the same goes for whiskey. See, whiskey is a drink, but it is so much more. Now that's a statement I have used many a time, but as time goes by, I feel more and more that the statement lacks the correct emphasis, even if actually it is correct at all. See, whiskey is a drink, but it is so much more. Perhaps it should be, whiskey is not just a drink, or whiskey is more than a drink. Whatever way I look at it, I have returned again and again to needing to be clearer about the more bit. What is the more? Is it actually the more that makes whiskey different? I mean, as drinks go, it's pretty good stuff, but there is more to it, and it is the more that raises it up to being something else. If whiskey is more than a drink, and we can understand what the more is, then maybe, just maybe, we can work out what whiskey is. Because the term drink isn't enough. Saying whiskey is a drink is like saying Handel's Messiah is a tune. The Grand Canyon is a bit of land, the Pacific Ocean is a bit of water, and Nelson Mandela is just some foreign bloke. Having said that, we must not underestimate the importance of the basic definition. Let's take a very simple definition of whiskey, being an alcoholic spirit made from distilling a liquid made from fermented grain. It gives us the basic starting point. From here, we can start building on aspects of malting, maturation, process, limitations to ingredients, etc., etc. But without these basic definitions, the foundations are lost. Without the foundations, we are unable to build a clear understanding. Instead, things become blurred. Let's take the aspect of ingredients. Without definition, people could start using things like fruit or adding substances such as sherry or varnish, spices or methylated spirits. In our world today, we can be reasonably certain that we know what goes into a whiskey, although there are exceptions, both in international law and in counterfeiting which has shown recent fatal consequences in Turkey. The state of definition at the level we now operate at is something that's only just over a hundred years old. To understand this, we must go back to the late 19th century and early 20th century. This was a time when the whiskey world and life in general was different in many ways. It was common for public houses to buy by the cask and serve from them direct. Claims were made of whiskey being thinned with some alarming additives, plum wine and sherry, cheap brandy, but also things like varnish. 
There was report of a man in Ireland having one glass and becoming so affected as to have lost his life. This practice was denied by many, but also led to a scandal. It is a subject covered wonderfully by Edward Burns in his book Bad Whiskey. It's reviewed on my website and is a book I strongly recommend. Also at this time was the impact of the column still and the making of grain whiskey and the emergence of blends, a practice which was to help lead to the Scotch whiskey industry claiming market victory over the Irish. This is not to say, however, that the malt distilleries were happy about grain whiskey, even in Scotland. Many malt distilleries were against grain whiskey, and in very strong terms. They saw it as not only being tasteless and inferior, lacking in the character of Scotch malt, they also saw it as being dangerous. In fact, there was a select committee of the House of Commons that inquired into this in 1890, and as part of this, experimented on two monkeys. One was intoxicated with new whiskey, and the other with fine old whiskey. The result was that the former became aggressive, whilst the latter didn't. And this seemed to support anecdotal evidence of men getting fighting drunk. And, ironically, there was actually a whisky brought out onto the market named after those monkeys. Highland Mort distilleries were unable to get a ban on grain whisky, but then, in 1905, Islington Borough Council took out a summons against some local publicans for selling an article not of the nature and substance demanded. It's a, an early form of trade description violation. This was to develop into a test case and was supported by all sides. The issue was the basic question, if one asks for whiskey and is served grain whiskey, is it really whiskey? In fact the question was, what is whiskey? Now initially the case came before the magistrate Mr Fordham who found the defendants guilty. They appealed with the support of the grain distilleries. This was eventually heard at Clerkenwell Court who took seven sittings before giving no decision. The grain distilleries then lobbied for a royal commission. Now at this point the President of the Board of Trade was a John Burns, a man who on a visit to Chicago told journalists that he thought the city was like hell. Three days later, when he was asked if he wanted to add to the statement now that he'd had time to see the city, he said yes, and simply said, I apologise to hell. This was not a man who was going to back down on Mint's words. Eventually, though, and under some pressure, he approved the appointment of a Royal Commission in 1907, and in response to that, Cambus Distillery launched an advert in the Daily Mail for its pure grain whisky, an advert that ran until the Royal Commission had concluded. Quite a cheeky thing to do in many ways. Despite 
arguments and pressure from both sides, the final report emerged in 1909, and in short, it supported grain spirit being called whisky. It allowed the use of continuous stills, but it did not fix a minimum period for bonding. This was not to happen until 1915, a time when grain was needed for food, and it was felt that Lloyd George was about to come down in favour of prohibition. See, Lloyd George was worried about drunkenness amongst the male population, but was also impressed by the Tsar, who introduced prohibition within Russia at the start of the war. At that time, a man very close to Lloyd George within the Ministry of Munitions was the director of John Walker and Sons, a Mr. James Stevenson. Now, this is going to be a man that hopefully you're going to hear more about next week's podcast, if all goes well. It was he that advised Lloyd George that whiskey should be matured in bond for two years, and it was then extended to three years a year later. Of course, the basic definition has been redefined more recently, and other countries have had their own variations, which enable us to have whiskies that are distinctly different by definition, such as Tennessee whiskey needing the Lincoln County process, and there are other alternatives as well. Now this helps us define the foundations of what is physically in the bottle. But let's get back to trying to understand those aspects that make it more than just a drink. Now, I'm not a fan of replaying bits of previous episodes, but sometimes it meets a need. And about a year ago, I interviewed Jim McEwen, and the way he spoke about whiskey illustrated part of the aspect of it being more. I think I'll probably, my last time I'll probably put Charlotte. I'm watching the kid growing, you know? Yeah. And hopefully I'll live for a few years there and he'll be there beside me. It's like my son, you know? Yeah. Uh, I would think it'd be one of these, my own creations sort of thing. Difficult question. Um, but it's got to mean something really important to you, you know, like that McCannon did, you know. You know, you, sometimes it, you go along a line of casks and they're all very beautiful and for some reason one of them just jumps out and yeah. embraces you and think, wow, you are so beautiful. You're just unbelievable, you know, it's like... What would be the one whiskey that you could bring back? One that you've had, you remember it, it's now gone, but you wish you could bring back. Ah, for sure. Easy. When I was in charge at Beaumont, uh, I was asked to select the sequence of the Black release, the Black Beaumont releases. Right. Black Beaumont is one of the greatest. That was 1964 and all of those. And I knew it well. I knew the cast well. They were in the cellar beside the sea. And I started in 1963 as Apprentice Cooper. So part of our job was filling the casks. So I remember filling these butts in 1964. And here we were years and years and years later, and I'm back as the manager of Beaumont, 
obviously asked to select the pecking order. I think there was only like six casts in total. So I had to pick first edition, second edition, and third edition, and then submit them to the board for approval. And the whiskey at this point was 30 years old. Uh, and it was a Friday afternoon. And November, this is more time, and there was a hell of a gale coming in off the west coast. It's going right off Canada. Gale Force 8, Friday afternoon. Everybody's gone home. It was me. And I lit, I've got my flashlight, it's a cellar, so there's no electricity sort of thing. And I've got my glass and my pipette. And I'm down there, and I've got this sat there, the whiskey's lined up. And there's no windows in the cellars, the sea spray was coming in. And I'm sitting there, and I was quite tired, and quite emotional, I guess, the wind was hurling. And I'm sitting there, nosing. It's the smell of vanilla, man. Yeah. We're sitting there nosing these great, great whiskies, thinking back. And for whatever that happens to me emotionally, I started thinking about all the people who had been there in 1964. Yeah. And they were virtually all dead. They were deceased. And here was I, the urchin from the moor, having the privilege to select their what men who I couldn't even polish their boots. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking about John the Maltman. I'm thinking, what a great guy. And Willie the Marshman. And all these guys came out of the glass. And it was quite sad. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, of, you know, I remember going to around church when my good friend Davy Bell died, you know. I'm thinking about old Davy. They were all involved in this. And suddenly, some tear drops start to fall from my eyes. I'm thinking, it's just a scary moment. Unforgettable. Mm. And I, put it, I had a drown, put it back in the gas, and went, this is amazing. Man. So, all the people were coming from the glass. I went home to my young wife, <coughs> and she said, are you okay, Jim? I said, well, I don't really know. She said, you look like I've seen a ghost. I said, I haven't actually seen a ghost, but I've been communicating with a ghost through a glass. She said, you're crazy, man. You're really, really crazy. I said, I explained the situation to her. So when you ask me what's the one I'll never forget, it was that moment, alone, in the vaults of Bomoa, the storm coming in and smelling that, and all the guys coming out, and the character and the personality of these people was evident in the whiskey. Yeah. The honesty and the integrity of these men came out. It was like, wow. You have released the genies in the The first illustrates how those close to whiskey develop a relationship with it. Jim saw that whiskey as a child that he fathered. We saw another as a memory of my father-in-law, the fact that whiskey can have such individual characters lends itself to being personalised. We can respond to them as if they were people. Alan Adamson, during the Edinburgh Fringe 2011, invited comedians to taste a whiskey with him 
each time matching a whiskey not with the flavour profile that they liked, but with their personal character, much as I have done with stories in some of these episodes. So this is one aspect of the more whiskey whiskey has character, which we relate to, we personalise it, we talk about it as if human, and by doing so it transcends a mere object and starts taking on a living presence. But there is more to the more. I was going to say that whiskey is functional, but that's not quite accurate. See, the cube that we defined earlier, that can be seen as functional. It may be a cube of sugar and have the function of sweetening tea. It may be a solid wooden cube with the function of a child's building block or a table. But what of the function of whiskey? By its component parts, one could suggest that its function is to inebriate, but that is far from the case. I would argue that as that as we have the potential to relate to whiskey almost as if it were alive, by acknowledging that it's got characteristics, that whiskey's functions are more in the form of roles. There is a crossover of terms. If we employ someone, we're able to separate them from what they do. The plumber plums. It is his or her role, but it is one of many. We employ for that role, but we acknowledge that he or she also has other roles in life. We tend not to do this for objects. A table is bought for its function as a table. We do not imagine that it is also a friend. Whiskey, in my view, does not have a function. It has a series of roles. Now, I may open a bottle of whiskey as part of a celebration, and I know it's going to perform the role of celebration very well. It will stand out as the focus of a toast. It will support relaxation. It will help us bond through shared experience, and already we begin to see its versatility with just one role. Yet I am aware that it's got other roles it can perform as well. Maybe this is why some whiskies are seen as being almost like old friends. We know them. We know when they shine or when they shy away. Some seem to want to socialise and some want to party. Some are quick. Others need teasing out. Yet whilst there is more to whisky than a taste profile, there are more roles and situations that whisky belongs to. Whisky, for example, is a transporter and a transformer. As a transporter, it takes us on a journey, actually often on more than one journey at the same time. The moment we start a whisky experience, we begin a journey. Our senses start to focus away from our current lives as we explore the sensory delights in front of us. But this exploration is not a simple objective assessment. 
Smells are well known to release emotions and memories from within us. Now I say emotions because sometimes our memories are triggered by external stimuli. And as these memories rise out from our unconscious minds, we respond to them emotionally. And sometimes that emotional response happens before the details of the memory are fully revealed. And this can give us a sense of an emotive reaction that does not always make sense at first. Now to illustrate this principle, I once told a family in a family therapy session how the smell of leather made me mildly anxious at times. And I explained that the reason for that was that it brought back memories of brand new leather satchels. For those of you who don't know because they're too young, leather satchels are what school children used to carry their books in. And that's the memory that it brought back to me. Brand new leather satchel. And of course a brand new leather satchel is what you had when starting school for the first time. And the excitement and the uncertainty of that. Now having said that, the mother who was there then picked up a piece of leather strap that I had, smelt it, and without thinking said, Oh, it brings back memories of that dog collar we had. The daughter asked, why did we have a dog collar? We've never had a dog. Quickly both parents looked at each other and blushed. I will say no more about that. And quickly back to whiskey. Whiskey has an amazing broad range of scents and flavours, not to mention textures and colours. It is no surprise that it takes us places and that it releases associated emotions. And as the alcohol disinhibits our defences, these become even more apparent. Notes of caramel and oakiness, sweet spice and leather tangy citric zest and floral heathery undertones not to mention salty sea spray and warming peat smoke. My life, what a wonderful journey there is in just one sniff of an open bottle, let alone an entire dram. No wonder it performs such roles as party starter, and yet comforter, as toast, yet also solace. Yet there is even more for whiskey also loosens the mind and frees creativity. The journeys it takes us on can colour our world. It can help us to transcend our lives to levels of alternative thinking. If we can walk along a rugged coast while sitting in an armchair with a glass of Jura, then our minds can go elsewhere as well. If we can escape the confines of our reality, we are able to consider hidden alternatives. We are aided in creative thought, and this can cause a positive loop. Whiskey is inspirational, but as it is made by us, it can also be inspired. Whiskey is made from a wide range of ingredients. Now I used to think there were three, water, 
yeast and grain. And then I realised there was one more, people. But then I realised that actually there were many more. You see, if whiskey is more than a drink, then what are the ingredients that make them more? Water, yeast and grain can make the drink, but there is also air, wood, location, people, tradition, heritage, chance, creativity, science, craft, terroir, weather and so much more. Once we realise that, we can begin to understand some other principles, some of which can seem a little contentious. There are magicians who make the whiskey. Traditionally, these are seen as the mash man and the distiller, but they are not alone. They are but a big part. Whiskey is complex. It affects our senses in many ways, as well as our emotions and our thoughts. Whiskey rarely comes to us in a neat way. Occasionally I'm sent samples that can come neat, small, clear, unlabeled bottles with a plain jiffy envelope surrounding them. The norm, however, is that whiskey comes within a designed bottle that is also within a designed box or tube with additional reading material and some advertising hype. But actually that is part of it. The marketing people, when they get it right, help in translating the whiskey. They help us understand what the whiskey is saying. Is it fiery? Is it gentle? Just as we will wear different clothes for different occasions, so whiskey can be dressed up, and when done badly, it's a terrible distraction, like an ill-matching tie on a good suit. But when done well, it serves to enhance the experience and become part of it. See, I do want to know about what inspired the whiskey, the name, how it was made and how people react to it. I'm mature enough to discard all that if need be, but I'm also humble enough to be helped by it if I need to. When I first visited the Hermitage in St. Petersburg, that wonderful, wonderful place full of so much art, I was very grateful to a lady by the name of Olga Binitskaya. She was my guide, and she seemed to know everything and brought wonderful works of art to an even higher level of wonder. And good marketing does the same thing. And yet, whiskey is even more than all of this. Whiskey is a traveller in time. In part, it is in the past. It has heritage. The smell, taste and feel of whiskey holds the echoes of those who made it from necessity from the need to scrap together an existence. Within the heat of the whiskey, one can still feel the defiance of those who stood up against the law to make it. 
those who fought for it, sometimes to the death, those who fought against regulation, taxation and restriction, not only defying government, but there are also those who claim to represent God. Tax and temperance may have battled against whiskey for generations, but it is a spirit that is strong in many ways. Yet there is a part of whiskey that is also in the future. New distilleries and new ways of making it, craft distilling, artisanal blending, extended ways of drinking it, matching it to food, encompassing it within highballs. Whiskey has become increasingly more global. More countries are making it and more variety is developing. Now, on the whole, I think this is great. I do have some concern that some countries could end up losing their own national drinks, and I think that whiskey will become more subdivided as consumers find types that they like. But as someone once said, don't try and get a bigger piece of the pie when you can have a bigger pie. And yet whiskey can be even more and this is where I struggle it can be a status symbol it can be an investment and I just don't know about that to me these roles move away from what whiskey is it's like going out with someone else because they make you look good or because they might buy you something now that's not love or friendship it's shallow, it's using. Now whilst there is something to be said about superstars, supermodels and people like that, the reality is that it is seldom a true reality. And you know, I just don't think whiskey needs it. Now I say this with due respect and please forgive me if this sounds inappropriate, but I heard once that soldiers who have won the Victoria Cross very seldom talk about it. They, they're not prone to boasting. And one reason for this is that it would seem that they've already been tested and they know the answer. They don't need to have it confirmed. And that is the opposite of the over-glamorized bling that often distracts from the deeper insecurities of its wearer. And whiskey doesn't need bling. And yet, whiskey is even more. And it is importantly more. Now, in the Chronicles of Narnia, we are warned about the lion Aslan. The lion that creates, helps, rescues, even sacrifices itself. But we are warned that Aslan is in fact not a tame lion. He's wild. And whiskey is also not a tame lion. Whiskey is also wild. Whiskey is a powerful and wild beast. It is strong and can affect us dramatically. It is something we must never forget. If we do we can be in mortal danger. 
This is not the fault, however, of whisky. It is the fault of the drinker who fails to recognise that fact. One needs to learn to respect and handle whisky, and that means never confusing it for some tame domestic pet. It is a powerful drug that can destroy lives, and its abuse is a real problem to society. Yet strangely, it is also part of its wonder. If we are stupid, we will be stupid. Through mistakes and experience, we can choose to mature. And I do think there is a strong element of choice. When people go out to get drunk, it's not the drink that does it. It is the choice to do so that does it. But learning self-discipline comes with self-awareness. And that comes with experience. Once learned, it can be more easily be applied to other aspects of life. So I see the dangers of alcohol like the dangers of wild animals. There are drinks that have little attraction and yet spread disease like mice and rats. These are the sweet, cheap, strong ciders and alcopops that feed on an immature market. They're also the less dangerous but rare and exotic animals, the expensive liqueurs. There are the workhorses of nature who give pleasure and get jobs done, the beers of the world. And then there is whiskey, majestic, curious, the king of the jungle. But remember, it's not a tame lion, he's wild. And yet whiskey is even more. We have only scratched the surface of what it is. So how can we define it? Was I right in thinking that whiskey is a drink, but it is more? Or is it not enough? Whiskey is an experience. But as a definition, that itself is not enough. Whiskey is a substance distilled from grain and matured over time in oak which through a process of being experienced enables or supports an emotional, social or mental process of associated reactions. Or whiskey is whiskey. That to me at the moment is perhaps the best definition as crazy as it sounds. Whiskey is whiskey. Now when you realise that, when you know it for what it is, then you know it for what it is. And that sounds a bit of a puzzle. It sounds a bit of rubbish. You see, there's a famous book called Whiskey, supposedly written by a bloke called Aeneas MacDonald. And in there, the beginning of the book, there is allusions to the fact that whiskey cannot be learnt from books it has to be learnt basically by experiencing it and when you've learnt it by experience when you've allowed to get into the whiskey and the whiskey into you and you gain that understanding of it all definitions go out the window 
and then perhaps you understand. Whiskey isn't a drink. It isn't more than a drink. Whiskey is actually whiskey. It's a thing in its own right. Well, thank you again for listening to this episode of the More to Muse podcast. If you haven't heard them already, there is a back catalogue of other episodes available on iTunes. And if anybody wants to contact me, they can do so. My email address is jim at themaltedmuse.com. There's the website, www.themaltedmuse.com. And there's also Twitter, Twitter at themaltedmuse. So thank you again for listening. I hope you'll listen next week. And until then, thank you and goodbye.